Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Bye, bye, bye. Hello, welcome to the Brown Baby Podcast. I'm your host, Nick S. Shukla. How do we raise our kids with joy and wonder in uncertain and, let's face it, bleak times? This is a question explored every week in my podcast, Brown Baby. And the whole thing was inspired by my memoir, Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family and home, which is out now. And so because I love having conversations around parenting and talking about my deepest, darkest fears, I invite parents of brown babies on to talk to me. So we have writers, musicians, chefs, comedians, actors and more to talk about their parenting journeys and the highs and lows they've experienced along the way. Speaking of my memoir, you know you can buy it, right? There's a link tree right in the show notes that'll take you to the sites that aren't the one that everyone tends to use. I mean, me personally, I would prefer if you bought it from an independent bookshop or from a book chain, but it's not up to me to make decisions on where you shop. So please just buy it wherever you want. But if you're one of those lovely people who wants to buy the book and wants to avoid the site that shall not be named, head to my link tree in the show notes for some top, top places. Now, to this week's podcast, we have the amazing writer Derek A. Bardowell. He is the author of the book No Win Race. No Win Race is Derek's deeply personal exploration into the complexities and biases implicit in being black in Britain, told through the prism of sport. It covers the period between the Brixton riots and Brexit, and it is a visceral, powerful book for those who want an honest insight into race relations in the UK, and for anyone who understands that sport is more than just a game. No Win Race was a Sunday Times Sports Book of the Year, a Financial Times Sports Book of the Year, and it was longlisted for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year as well. Derek is a great writer and an absolute delight to talk to. We've spoken on the internet before, but never really in person. This was the first time we chatted and it was a warm and lovely and very sweet chat. We spoke about the power of sport, trying to get our kids to be into the same stuff as us and also the things our immigrant parents went through. It's a gorgeous chat. But first, how do you stop your kids saying poo? Like it's the funniest thing in the world. I'm happy for them to laugh and make jokes, but I just wish it was better bands, you know? 
that is the thing that's been haunting me all of this week. Poo, 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 poo. It's been all the chat all the entire time. And they just fall about giggling like it's a Stuart Lee joke. And it's one of those things that's funny, then funny, then funny, then not funny, then not funny, then funny. And uh, poo, 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 poo. And I just today lost my temper. Because every time I've tried to ban the word in the last few weeks, it just gives it more power. They, it makes them want to say it more. And so every time I try to pivot to something else, they keep bringing it back to poo. And today I just lost my mind while we were playing Lego. And I decided to overexpose them to the word, like full-scale radiation poisoning or something. So I just started saying poo, 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 over and over again. Poo, 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 poo. And they laughed and they laughed and they laughed and it wasn't working and I, but I had to keep going. I'd committed to it. Poo, 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 poo. And then they laughed. Poo, poo, poo. And then it wasn't funny. Poo, 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 poo. And then it was irritating. Poo, poo, poo. And I thought it's working. I have to keep overexposing them to it. Poo, poo, poo. Radiate them. Poo, poo, poo. And then I said it one time too many. And then it was funny again, like a goddamn Stuart Lee joke. And I laughed as well. Now to the podcast interview, Derek A. Bardwell. Welcome to the podcast, Derek. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing, Nikesh? Yeah, I am. Yes, I am fine. I had one of those mornings where the school run just seemed so impossible and everything was running like five minutes behind and everyone was being belligerent about the things that they needed to do and my youngest would only let her eldest sister put on her shoes and wouldn't let me do it and she then wanted to do her poppers up on her coat herself but she obviously (laughs) was struggling with doing the poppers and we're running up the road and oh my god it was just one of those mornings um how, how has your morning been uh same um you know always concerned about you know um my kids and and period of covid and whether they're going to end back at home again and all of that sort of stuff so all kind of insecure but yeah not as crazy as what your morning was both your kids in school yeah so i've got a 15 year old and a 10 year old um so the 15 year old is uh in her final year and is uh doing her GCSEs so um that's crazy um and yeah I got a 10 year old in primary school so yeah I mean all all good um and they're 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 managing or have managed you know the last few months um impeccably well you know how 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 has your 15 year old been coping with uh you know, having to do exams in a three months' time, and uh, far better than her parents. <laughs> um, she, 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 she's quite um, laid back, and you, you always get concerned with your kids, right? It's because you're always quite, you know, concerned that you know maybe what's going on internally is completely different to the way that they're managing it externally. But you know, she's, um, you know, she does her thing, and um, you know, and, and I think that's the thing that's really come out so much, you know, over the last few months is that you know school always makes me slightly nervous and anxious because I'm always worried about what they're learning I'm always worried about you know whether the individual nature of your kids that you see the best of them is uh, uh, allowed to flourish in in the school environment and so I always spend my time feeling really anxious 
And then just seeing her at home and watching her super duper creative self, her, you know, invention, her wackiness, her weirdness, you know, I've sort of thought, you know, she, she's cool. She, <laughs> she, she's okay. Whatever. I don't know what she's going to do and I don't know where she's going to go, but, you know, she, um, and I don't know whether the school gets her and whether schooling in this country allows that space for people to, you know, for kids to just be themselves and flourish in that way. But, you know, I just thought to myself over the last few months, you know, she she just got a multitude of just different things and stuff that she can do. Um, whether the school can spot it or not doesn't, you know, it's not a huge concern, to be honest. Is she at the stage where you're you're hugely embarrassing or is she at the stage where you guys can kind of carry on conversations and be excited about things and kind of share each other's interests. Well, it's 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 funny. We're, we're, we're still talking. So everyone said to me, right, they said, you know, when your daughter gets to secondary school, she's going to stop talking to you. And I said, for how long? And they said, well, probably until she's about 20. And I was like, 20? That's like a whole decade she's going to stop talking to me. It's like, yeah, because, you know, you're going to be kind of uncool. Um, you know, you're probably going to be a bit embarrassing. And, you know, before that point, you would have probably been really cool to her or you would have thought that you're really cool to her and her friends or whatever. And, yeah, you'll just become an embarrassment and then she will, you know, just not talk to you for a time. Um, and I, I've been quite fortunate that you know she's got to you know her final year of of GCSEs and she's still talking to me probably is embarrassed by me and and all of that but at the same time you know we, we're still talking so it hasn't been a whole decade lost now I'm still preparing for the second part of that <laughs> phase to happen you know so it, it could still happen but yeah it's it's um fine yeah you, you don't want to get to the bit where the only time she talks to you is when she needs money. Because I feel like... Yeah, well, I feel like from the age of, like, 16... Well, no, I, I'd never asked my parents for money until I was in my early, early 20s and wanted to move out, I think. But, yeah, like, there was a period where the only conversations I ever had with my parents was to get them to bail me out. Well, it's, you know what? my So I was... I, I had this weird one, because I've got two older sisters, and... The thing is, when I first started getting pocket money, which was a big thing, because I got my pocket money years later than any of my friends got pocket money. And when I got that money, it was nowhere near the amount of money that my friends had. My friends had notes. What? Right? They had notes. <laughs> yeah, they had notes. They had notes for, for pocket money. Jeez. And I was like, and I was like, I had coins. <laughs> and so when I had my coins, the first thing that I would do was go up and buy I don't know whatever the the uh, marathon which is now Snickers I'd buy you know some sweets and that's pretty much all I would buy and then my older sister um, she just grasped on me she just told my dad she said oh dad you know what every time you give Derek the little bit of change that I had for the week um, he just buys sweets so then I just got banned like, <laughs> my dad just cut my pocket money and that was it so that whole notion of trying to buy anything or asking my <laughs> mum and dad for 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 money and stuff like that food clothing shelter everything that's cool but money yeah that that wasn't um really happening but yeah I blame my sister for that one yeah I think from the age of 15 I had I had part-time jobs so I worked every weekend and uh because I've got two two older cousins uh who are twins 
and they would always be dressed in exactly the same clothes. I got, I always got their hand me down, so I would always get two, two sets of the same clothes. So like I'd fit into one and then grow out of it, and then immediately grow into the next one. And so I never had my own stuff. And so as soon as I turned sixteen, you know, I I would work, you know, more out. I'd pull in more hours than, than my mum and dad would know about. Um, just so I'd have an extra money so I could go and buy my own things because I but then I look back at it now and I'm like damn I had two sets of this amazing LA Lakers bomber jacket when I was like 14 oh. years old that was like the original golden era Magic Johnson nice Lakers jacket and I don't know where that ended up that probably ended up in like a charity shop or something one idiot no no but okay if you want to talk about being an idiot I can't remember the age I was, but for some reason, I purchased uh, a life-size cardboard cutout of Magic Johnson, a (laughs) six-foot-nine-inch monstrosity of a cardboard cutout of Magic Johnson that sat in my bedroom. Well, it didn't sit in my bedroom. It It stood, towered over your bed. It (laughs) towered over everything for years and years because I was a huge Lakers fan, right? So, you know, I remember like mid-80s and they just started showing some, you know, the NBA and the Lakers were like all flash. Jack Nicholson was on the sidelines and all of that. And so I was like, Magic Johnson, that's my man right there. So I, I found a way of purchasing this, um, you know, no disrespect to Magic, but, you know, in a, a very tiny bedroom in your mum and dad's house where you, you <laughs> walk in and, and Magic's kind of looking down at you every time you walk in. You know, it, it, it didn't quite go with the house, you know what I mean? Yeah, God. They, they had a brilliant season last year. I I was in LA yeah. like a year and a half ago and it was just after LeBron had moved to the Lakers when they were, that team was still hadn't quite figured themselves out yet and they were really bad and they lost to the Dallas Mavericks. Is it the Dallas yeah. Mavericks? Could have been. God, yeah. Oh God, it was, it was a terrible match and we were, you know, the cheapest seats possible, like right at the top. And I think you don't realise up until you're up until you're sitting in those seats how high they go up. Yeah. Where you, could, you know, you're watching the entire thing actually like on the screen rather than on the on the court because you... it's. I, I, so every time I've gone to the states, I always take in a game, right? Every time without fail, and it's like you know, and all you can really afford. You're right, the nosebleed seats. That's about yeah. it. But you literally have to watch the screen in the middle yeah. because you are so far away from the action. The people that surround you are kind of a little uninterested in what's going on. You're sort of away from the, the, the atmosphere of everything. But, you know, it's always a pleasure if you get to see some of those players playing. Yeah, it was really cool seeing LeBron play. And it's just one of those things where, like, it was I, you, you don't realise until you're actually there that they have an announcer announce who is playing like who has the ball and each player has their own like 10 second sting and it's really helpful when you're so far away (laughs) that you're able to figure out figure the game out and figure out what's going on (laughs) obviously you you write so wonderfully about sport like are you do you do you try and bring your kids in with you into into following following sports and stuff or, or are they like that's that stuff. Nah, the, the the poor the poor things they they get dragged to basketball games with me um, over here. You know, so they they are more doers than they are watchers. You know, so my son he plays football and he plays football I think four times a week and and 
you know, he loves it. It's his passion. It's so much fun to him. I find it torturous watching him in matches because I just kind of live and breathe every single minute that he plays. Are and, you the dad? Are you the dad on the sideline shouting? I I I try not to be, <laughs> but I end up being that dad on the sideline, and I always end up being a bit like that sort of overly critical dad as well. You know, the the dad that sort of says okay get back into position get back into it and I see my son sort of looking at me at times like um okay you've just contradicted yourself with what you've (laughs) said with your instructions and that doesn't align with what my coach is actually saying um you know so so you know you know so it's always quite torturous but you know he he enjoys it and he has a laugh at my expense in terms of my sideline instructions and bad instructions and my daughter she's the same she 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 likes you know climbing and anything that's slightly dangerous in terms of sport but uh prefers to do it than watch it but you know at the same time um I, i'm such a huge basketball fan and i watch uh you know i'd, I'd take them to you know the the games over here because there's the british basketball league over here and you know obviously it's not like the nba and it's not as good as the nba but the thing that you get to do is you get right close to the court mm. and you're able to see what's going on you're able to to get right in with the action and so my kids they absolutely love it and then you know the players over here tend to be quite cool guys so they'll be high-fiving my kids as they're going by you know we'll take pictures of them afterwards but the main thing is that they're so close to the action unlike going to some other sports you know I'm sure going to see Arsenal or West Ham or I've gone to see you know Crystal Palace before which has been fantastic but you're so far away from the action that you don't get to sort of breathe it and experience it in quite the same way. In the early noughties I worked for a football club on this really it was a really interesting project um it was ch- so chart and athletic for years that the valley where they their ground had been in disrepair so they shared their stadium with uh millwall when they moved back to the valley i can't remember when they moved back to the valley i started this job in like 2002 maybe like the the socio-economic makeup of charlton had completely changed and there was like now a huge bangladeshi community there was a huge vietnamese community you know huge swathes of immigrant uh families had moved into the area and on match days they would all be fucking terrified when you know Charlton <laughs> you know used to well, I, I don't know I'm, I've been out of that scene for a minute but you know traditionally their fans you know it's like horrible football firms would like be like walking through Charlton singing uh racist defensive songs and all these people who'd moved to the area they'd be terrified to leave their house and so Charlton Athletic to their credit worked with Greenwich Council um, to start up an anti-racism project and it was like in the in the heady days of Labour's community cohesion and social integration social what was it social integration projects and I worked on one of them which and I worked on the project just to bring families together um, to basically make them feel comfortable enough to sit in the stands and watch football matches. So Charlton uh, and, and I completely understand that that change that happened at that point but Charlton was really ahead of the game at that time because they had Michelle Moore was was running a lot of the stuff at Charlton at the time and I think Rubel Ahmed and I think Anne Herriman I might be forgetting but you had these amazing practitioners who were really good at being able to change the culture of Charlton from what it was before to 
the days that you were there and and you know and, and I just always felt that that type of work sometimes and, and I write a bit about it in the book um in No Win Race that that whole thing where there's these amazing things that happen in various communities mm. that either for whatever reason either get erased or they lose funding mm. but actually they've shown a way in which football should act and they were doing it like 20 years ago you know we've seen that nothing hugely has changed in football in terms of racism on the terraces and stuff um and racism in terms of you know who gets to make the decisions in football um but then you look at some of the stuff that has been done previously and you're like well, well why didn't why didn't that get more funding or why wasn't that you know mainstreamed or adopted mm. more widely because it would answer some of the problems that we have right now so yeah let's let's talk about no win race um for for a bit uh is that it's it's out on paperback now yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's, um can, can you just tell tell the listeners a bit about the book um because because there, yeah, there's a well, there's a bit of the book that i re- so no no i'm i'm, I'm le- leading before you've even <laughs> told told us what the book is <laughs> well you know it, it really looks at the race and racism in britain through the lens of sport um you know and it looks at you know the last 40 years of of that so pretty much you know my life from being a primary school student to to now and I, I guess you know sport said so much about what was going on in society for me through different you know times for me I always remember elements of my life through things like world cups and the olympics you know some people will talk about the soundtrack to their lives and things about music and how that's the soundtrack to their lives for me it was sporting events and so the good and the bad of what was happening in my life at that particular time I kind of remember it through you know you know Lennox Lewis versus Frank Bruno or the 2012 olympics or Minta Hagler and things of that nature so you know, I really wanted to tell that story. I really wanted to tell the story of, um, and, and I really wanted to tell it as a, as a story of, you know, these things that we experienced and, you know, the conversations that I would have had with my school friends were just not reflected in any of what was coming out in the newspapers or how people were commentating about the, the sport at the time. So I really wanted to tell that side of the story and also the fact that, you know I, as a kid I just wanted to watch sport for fun you know yeah. I just you know and, and if you're a footballer or a, a tennis player or whatever sport you were doing and you were uh, a, a black person doing any of those sports you, you know you're, you're not there to be a political figure you just want to excel in the work that you're you're doing and you know obviously race um, and racism follows you everywhere in this country and suddenly you know all of the things that I was dealing with as a as a kid um, on the street. Um, you know was just reflected in you know watching match of the day on on a Saturday night. The booze and you know the things that people had to deal with, the players had to deal with at the time. I, I was uh, you know I was like God, I can't enjoy this thing that's meant to be escapism for yeah. me. Um, it's not escapism for me because it's just reflecting my day-to-day reality. So I really wanted to tell that story. Um, but I also wanted to just celebrate, yeah. you know, these players and some of the unsung heroes of, of sport. You raise an amazing point about pe- just wanting to watch football and, you know, the players just wanting to play football. And, you know, I think there's, you know, we have it perfectly in the news at the moment with Marcus Rashford, where yeah. you, 
you know, Marcus Rashford is 23 years old, 24 maybe yeah. now. Do you think he wants to spend his time being a campaigner and an activist <laughs> and enjoy heaps and heaps of abuse on, on Twitter for, for asking a seeming, seemingly obvious and, you know, open-hearted thing? Like, he would much rather be playing football, I don't know, playing on a PlayStation if he owns a PlayStation, watching whatever he's watching on Netflix getting on with his life like he doesn't want to be doing all the other stuff in the same way that like you know i do find that if you are a prominent person of color be you know in the arts and entertainment in in sports and and so on and so forth you often also bring it bring with you like a campaigning side and it's almost like incumbent on you to do it it would be irresponsible of us to not use our platforms to do this it's it's so difficult it's such a difficult balance because you know, in the one sense, you're like, I just want to, you know, I just want to write a book, you know, and I just want to write something that is just going to be, you know, fun. And I'm not saying that you can't talk about these topics in ways that are not joyful and abundant and and beautiful and and all of that sort of stuff, but it, it follows you. And that's, that's the thing is that for me, so many people that I know and admire and respect, irrespective of what field they're in, be it lawyers, um, be it people in the media, it's inescapable. So even if to some degree they don't want to do it, they always end up being an activist voice because if you're in any position of privilege whatsoever, it's, it's really tough to be in that position and not do something about it and and I think you know Marcus Rashford what he's doing Raheem Sterling what those guys are doing is amazing largely because not just because of their age but because unlike previous generations they're doing it at the peak of their powers they're doing it at a time when it's most at risk for them in terms of you know the next few years of their career and I think they've taken a lot of learning from you know a lot of the American basketball stars Mm. who have said do you know what I'm putting myself out there but what I'm going to do is I'm going to write and control this narrative Mm. you know I'm going to I'm not going to enable anyone to tell this story so you see Marcus active on social media you see him counteracting stuff that negative stuff that's written about him which is crazy because I'm just like why are you going to write negative stuff about Marcus Rashford you know um, he's doing an amazing thing but the fact that they're just so self-aware about really being able to control their narrative for me is really important and it's just also important that you know my son who loves football you know he will get his Marcus Rashford card (laughs) And even though he is my son's a Man City fan, um, he will look at his Marcus Rashford card with a great deal of pride because of what he's doing and what he's contributing. And, you know, that's not the one route or the only route to social change. You know, famous people's, you know, is part of the equation, but it's really fundamentally important. One of the things that you write about uh, in no win race that I really love is this idea of sport of football as as a unifier for for communities and and I really love that idea. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that yeah I, I think if so i've I've been fortunate to have really been around some amazing educators, and when I say educators, I mean they may be coaches and qualified coaches, but what they're really good at doing is creating really inclusive environments for for young people which means that 
you know, it doesn't matter what your ability is or what your background is. They're very good at being able to integrate, integrate people. And I think that's just been one of the lost arts of, of the education system is, you know, I'm not definitely not saying that sport can solve problems and whatever. But what I am saying is that I have seen through organisations like Fight for Peace and Peace Players International and others where they've really been able to get, you know, young people on the right track. They've really been able to bond, you know, young people from different backgrounds. And they've been able to speak to, to young people in a way or in a language that perhaps other things haven't succeeded. And so it's really important. But what I don't get is why the techniques that some of these um, social enterprises uh what they use and a bit like what we were saying earlier about Charlton and what you know Michelle and those guys were doing earlier why that isn't more widespread in schools you know and again it's not going to solve the problem but it's part of the equation that's really really missed in terms of the ability and the power of sport to really bond people and of course it's hugely symbolic it's hugely symbolic that you know that ability for sport and you'll know this yourself if you know you watch sport it can disarm people in a way that very few things can, you know. I put out um, a YA book about a young kid who who takes up boxing after boxing, yeah, yeah, after, um, to help him deal with the trauma of a racist attack, and he kind of finds finds himself and he finds a community in his boxing gym. And one of the really amazing things about doing that book and talking to young people about it was just was discovering how much boxing was used as a way of um helping young men young men um uh, living in difficult situations and from difficult backgrounds helping give them focus and structure in a way that school aimed to do but not everyone is ready for that academic way of uh, of structure changing their life at the point at which it was a uh, tends to arrive in their lives and and so these these boxing gyms and these boxing programs were doing all these amazing things to basically help these young guys just focus on something, and it, it was it was really inspiring to watch. So, so you you might know of Empire up in in Bristol. Empire Empire's where I trained. So, oh, is that where yeah, you trained? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! So, so I think one of the very first events that I did was with Empire when I when I released the book in 2019. One of the very first events was with Empire because I was just like this is what I'm speaking to, you know, this is, you know, what they are able to do, um, where, you know, look, they're able to produce elite fighters in that gym, Mm. but they're able to bond communities in that gym. They're able to work with young people who are on the wrong side of the track in that gym. And I'm like, you know, and I and I, as I said, you've got organisations like Fight for Peace and others across, you know, Track Academy that does that through, you know, athletics, you know, that are doing this amazing stuff um, in ways that are unimaginable in terms of the sense of belonging that they give to, you know, not just young people, you know, it's like a whole community of people who this is their community, this is the place where they feel really safe and where they can express themselves and and you know the work that organizations like them do is is amazing um to me but should be resourced far more mm. i feel like you might even have invited me to that event but i wasn't in town that day 
or maybe not. I can't. I think I probably did. Yeah, it's a wonderful. It's a wonderful space. It's it's basically. I had such preconceptions about what boxing gyms were like until I went into that space, <laughs> and everyone was just like, "We get new people in here all the time for whatever brought you here, brought you here, but you're here." And it was such a lovely open space. And I would, um, Chris, the guy who who set it up, who you know, is a fabled ex-local hero boxer. I'd see him every see him every morning because I like to go in the morning when there was no one else there when I was sort of le- learning to throw a punch um, and he'd always just sort of stand there and chat with me and fix my form and all the rest of it while he was like had a towel draped around him I don't think he lived there. he obviously didn't live there but I think he often have his morning shower at the gym when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Going back to parenting and um, one of the things that I really love about your work is it is so community focused and community minded and so much about young people and, you know, helping young people to kind of find focus. And when you think about your, you know, your your own parents and how how you were raised um can you just tell tell us a little bit more about how you viewed your parents when you were growing up yeah i you know so so my parents are everything you know um and i i always said that and when the book came out it was so much of a dedication to them as well as my mm-hmm. kids largely because you know i know that you know they you know my dad you know first came over f- from jamaica you know, having grown up without, you know, running water or, you know, um, electricity in his house and to be able to make the life that he did over here um, and do so through unbelievable levels of sort of patience and tolerance um, was was really amazing to me. And and, And again, with the book, you know, I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, so much stuff is written, that's written, um, about black men and black manhood is is negative um, and always tends to be stuff on absent fathers, crime, etc. And I really was like, well, you know, this wasn't 
my reality and this wasn't a reality for the majority of 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 my peers you know we had you know involved fathers um we had and you know it's not like all of us knew how to manage um life in britain or life uh raising a second generation black kid in britain who was you know my generation was was deemed as a problem to the state you know we were deemed as you know muggers um and and things of that nature you know and there were so many of my peers black male peers who were um you know excluded from school or got into trouble and you know at the time you didn't know what was going on um and you weren't you weren't quite sure and so my dad you know was playing that juggling act which is the same juggling act that I'm playing with my my son which is you know here's the reality of the situation Mm. um how do I build you up to be resilient to a a country that is going to discriminate against you without um lessening your um ambitions without um you know crushing your dreams yeah. and all of that and and it's such a difficult juggling act but the the thing that was really uh, you know as I was writing the book the thing that really struck me was that my my dad was you know he grew up in Jamaica he you know as a black male who who whose conception of racism because he's grown up around black people was not the same as mine where from a very young age I was aware of racism growing up as a black kid and even though Newham where I grew up was was you know multicultural it was still burdened by the national front it was still burdened you know we had national front leafleting outside of our school gates you know we had um you know police that were arresting black and Asian kids for defending themselves against racist attacks Mm. you know there wasn't any justice for us and that hostility that was never covered in the press it was always just kind of ignored that's what we grew up with so it was very plain for us to see you know or plain for me to see and then um and and plain for me to 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 respond to um but then you know I've got my son now who you know he's got an awareness of it particularly over the last 12 months with what's happened with COVID and, and George Floyd but you know has got this awareness of race at a young age not the the blatant experiences that I had endured at, by the time I was 10 but you know he's got that awareness of it but at the same time unlike myself you know he was he supports the England football team you know and you know he he you know was balling when England got knocked out of the World Cup in 2018 I I've never cried for England <laughs> losing a sport <laughs> before that that just wasn't that's just foreign to me but the same thing is is that as um three generations of black males we've evolved in terms of our relationship with this country in a way that the country's relationship with us has not evolved and that was the big thing for me is that my son will be uh, facing these hidden barriers that are going to be really difficult for him to to negotiate because unlike my ones you know I could see it it was plain in my face if the police stopped and searched me as painful and as embarrassing as that was I kind of knew what not to do next time round mm. you know um you know I always have this incident where I went into a shop with a white uh, friend of mine and I was 
I don't know, probably about nine or ten. And as we came out the shop, I got stopped and searched. And only me. So my friend, he wasn't stopped and searched, just me and the police. You know, it's daytime, coming back from school. They thought I'd stolen something. I hadn't stolen anything. Embarrassed me in front of the street. Didn't apologise, walked on. Um, So from that moment on, I kind of knew, okay, Derek, don't ever go into a shop with an item that you've purchased in another shop because that will just give them an excuse. Or if I'm going to go into a shop, then just make sure you buy something, even if it's small, just buy something so people can't get you. And that's a horrible state to be in. It's a horrible, paranoid state to be in. But I kind of had a response to it. When I look at my son now and I'm like, what I worry about is, you know, algorithm racism, AI racism, or the kind of hidden covert stuff where, you know, any kid that's got any level of self-reflection when stuff goes wrong you you start to think is it me is it me and if you don't have that sometimes things that are blatant and I'm not saying you go back to days of blatant I'm just saying that the challenge is different but ultimately the racism is still there it just has taken another form I just want to go back to something that you said because you you reminded me of something and and I do want to come back um to talk about you and you and your son um I, I sometimes wonder whether, like, you know, in the swathes of, of immigration, whether it was, um, you know, from, from Jamaica in the 50s or uh, 40s and 50s or with the, um, f- with Indians in the 50s and 60s, I always wonder whether the whether the, the British envisaged us staying long enough to put down roots and have families. And I'm reminded of one of the most beautiful and tragic things I've ever seen on British television, just mostly because it reminds me of my mum, is an episode of Desmond's where Desmond has had an operation. I reference this in, in the in Brown Baby in the book, but Desmond has had an operation and there's a conversation between Shirley and Pork Pie. And Shirley is saying, neither of us ever imagined we'd die here. We both came over imagining we'd make our money and we'd go back to Guyana and we'd die there. And I think that Desmond still wants that. He still wants to go back to Guyana and to die there. But I'm not ready to. You know, I've, we've had a family here. We've put down roots. We've, we've got the shop and all the rest of it. Because with my dad, my dad never talked about the stuff that he went through ever. He was stoic. He was just one of those, let's just get on with it kind of guys. And I don't, yeah. I don't yeah, want I you think... to know what I've been through because I don't want you to feel like it's going to be as hard for you as it was for me because that's not the dream. And so it was almost it was almost as as if it was as much for him as it was for me, but I think about yeah. that episode of Desmond's all the time because I think that is quintessentially the the kind of the contradictory tragedy of the immigrant experience. It's so true because I remember going back to not going back to, but my mum and dad going back to Jamaica for the first time in the early 90s, 91, and it was like 30 years that they'd been in this country. So they'd been in this country longer than they had been in Jamaica because they came over, you know, in their early 20s. And um, and they had a great time and it was unbelievable them seeing their relatives again and stuff. But there wasn't that desire to go back again. Um you know, so it was really weird because, you know, we went back or or I went back to Jamaica and and even though I knew that I wasn't, I didn't quite fit in, you know, I, I used to, you know, walk around trying to be 
picture faken, you know, and and wearing all types of things that made me look like that I thought made me look like one of the sort of ragga DJs of the early 90s and <laughs> sort of quickly walked into, you know, Montego Bay uh, airport and, you know, had these guys just shouting out, Hinglish, Hinglish, you know, and it was like, oh, don't I blend in, and, you know. Um, and, you know, which was like super embarrassing. But at the same time, being there was incredibly warm I didn't feel like oh I'm gonna relocate to Jamaica and this is my homeland but it felt like a home um and it felt important for my mum and dad I feel to go back and to feel that and to see it again perhaps if only to have some confirmation that they were not going to quite go back and I don't know I haven't had that conversation with them whether that is a tragedy for them or it's a bind or whether they've like you know this is you know England is our home and and things of that nature but you know there's almost something romantic in the way that they talk about back home Mm. that feels like it would almost be sullied if they were to go back uh having been in this country for you know whatever 50 60 years you know and and go back to what you were saying about your son and and your daughter and obviously your your son's kind of increased awareness of the way the world is in the last twelve months. Uh, you 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 started talking about it, but I just wanted to expand on it because I think it's really interesting. How how do we how do we raise our kids to be aware of the realities of the world and the space that they take up in the world and how that will be viewed by others, but also ensure that they are as joyful and as boundless and as filled with ambition and and all the rest of it as as anyone else you know that's that's always my big worry because I worry that I will then end up just projecting all of my bullshit onto them all of (laughs) Uh, I, I mean it's the eternal battle that we have right you know so probably a bit like your father my dad was also reluctant to share I am of a generation where I probably overshare <laughs> so um you know in the one sense um I, I was probably particularly with my daughter um like just super black you know so it was like from the time that you know my daughter was a short was was you know um you know walking it was like you know, everything from the books that she was reading, that I was reading to her, to the dolls, to everything. It was like, I think I even got a Malcolm X comic book, right? I I searched online and got a Malcolm X sort of comic book of his life and, and was reading that. So, so for me, it was like, I had this huge anxiety of, God, I need to instill this in them, you know, straight away. And and I'm going to overshare, you know, and I'm going to overshare about my experiences and all of that sort of stuff. And and I've kind of chilled. I think, you, you know, you have a second kid and you slightly <laughs> end up being a bit more laid back about these things. And you start to realise that actually, you know, if you look at my, my, my bookshelf, if you look at the pictures that's on my wall, if you look at you know, obviously my family, the food we eat and everything, actually they are surrounded by my culture and black, British, black, Caribbean culture. It's it's there. And while there are moments where you have to have that conversation, you know, you have to have that conversation to enable your kids to 
negotiate this world, you also start to realise that in the same way that kids pick up on parts of your behaviour that you absolutely don't think that they would, actually the images that they see, the way, the conversations that they hear me having on a day-to-day basis from, from this to you know, them attending talks that I do to the literature that uh, myself and, and my partner write, you know, they recognize certain things just through our being. But I will never, ever tell you that I've got that balance mm. licked because there's been times when, you know, I've really wanted to put stuff on them um, at a really young age and had to be checked in terms of, Derek, don't don't impose the anxieties that you had um, and the lifelong anxieties that you had on them. They need to experience it themselves. And it's that parent's instinct that you want to experience every piece of hurt on their behalf. You, you don't want them to experience any of that stuff. But at the same time, they have to go through it. But, you know, always, uh, you know, the other thing that always strikes me is that, you know, I remember my, my dad saying to me one point at one point that... You know, my dad was a painter and decorator and, and you know, before he retired and he uh, turned around and uh, he was doing some work in Labrick Grove and I was living in Labrick Grove at the time. So I'd go at lunchtime to, to, you know, hang out with him in between working and I never forget him turning around and saying to me, you know, um, God, I'm glad I'm not growing up in these these times. And this was probably around 2004, 2005. And I was like, I was like, you crazy. You know, you grew up in the 60s. You had it much harder than I did. And he was just like, well, yeah, in some respects it was. But, you know, we could make our way. We had some freedom to be able to um, do our own thing and to be able to, you know, if we wanted to create our businesses, there was just none of this. There was just no barriers in terms of that. And, and you know, again, I don't want to impose stuff on my son because I want him to be, uh, you know, I loved what you said about being joyful. And the thing that I got from my parents amid all of the stuff growing up in Newham was joy. Joy in the food we ate, um, joy in the making of the food that we had, music, lots of laughter, you know, endlessly me and my sisters and my family taking the mickey out of each other, you know, we, you know, debate as well. There's, you know, um, you know, I always used to worry a lot because, you know, when I got a bit older and me and my dad used to have some scraps on, uh, uh, you know, about politics and stuff. And I was like, this is healthy. This is good. Because, you know, some of my friends, they wouldn't even talk to their dads. They, you know, they'd be in the room with them and it's like, they're no conversation. It's like me and my dad are going at it politically. So that thing of, you know, ultimately my mum and dad incubated me a lot from, stuff that was going on the outside and part of that thing was even if outside isn't quite so safe in here is safe in here is joyful and in here irrespective of how much money we have or we don't have we're going to eat well we're going to laugh we're going to sit down and watch movies together um and we're going to just hang out and and that's always that's remained the same it's remained the same. I, I I think I might have said this to you before. The most precious item I've got is like, you know, my mum my mum did me a cookbook a few years ago of her recipes. And that, you know, to this day, you know, my mum's cooking is is the thing that binds my family and my friends, um, and everything. So for me, that that 
gift that she gave me, her home recipes with her stories and her anecdotes of, of how she came about to cook these foods with, with not much in the way of proper sort of measurements. It's like a cupful of this, and a, <laughs> you know, a couple of teaspoons of that, you know, but, but that, that joy is, is the one thing that I am desperately holding on to in terms of how I raise my kids to make sure that, you know, I'm not this morose, aloof, grumpy type of, type of dude you know (laughs) and as you were talking I was just reflecting on the fact that it's so rare to have what to to have these these conversations I get you know in the public eye you know on a a podcast between two men of color being vulnerable about you know raising children and all the rest of it but also you know all of this stuff that is particular to the experience of raising non-white kids in this country like obviously you know there is you know I'm not putting us in the same in the same boat you know there is such specificity between you know your background and heritage and mine but the fact that you know in 2020 these conversations 2021 these conversations are starting to happen or starting to happen publicly rather than you know just on text or or what have you it's just like I need more of this I need more of these conversations Derek you know this is just filled me with such hope for the world and like such warmth and loveliness thank you so much no and 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 thank you because you know one of the things that I reflected upon when I was writing the book was being a kid and being stopped and searched by the police and having these incidents with teachers at school we didn't talk about any of that stuff so I thought I was just going through it alone and I thought that my experiences were worse than anyone else's and and they weren't you know there were people that were going the stuff that I might have been dealing with you know uh, every week people were dealing with every day you know the stuff that I thought I was really embarrassed about people were going through the same thing but because we as as well men generally but we were just not talking about it so it's just really valuable that we do get to speak about these things be open be vulnerable but also have a bit of a laugh about it too Derek A. Bardwell thank you very much thank you thank you so much to Derek for joining us on the podcast today and to you for your ears and your time I hope it was a great listen for you please remember to subscribe and to leave us a review and a five-star rating talk about us on social media please use the hashtag hashtag brown baby book or hashtag brown baby podcast and you can like and subscribe and leave us a review and a five-star rating as I said I mean if you want to give us a one or two-star rating then maybe just keep that to yourself The internet is filled with things that have undeserved one or two star ratings. Leave this one be, it's brand new. Thanks to my publisher Bluebird for the support and to Acast. And please remember to buy the memoir Brown Baby. It's out now. I will see you next week. Goodbye, my friends. Goodbye. Brown baby, I am brown baby. Yes, I am, I am. Silly brown baby. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details